Discover More, Discover More is, a show is a show for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. If a farmer or a rancher is like a repeat offender, so if they have a cattle that flags for antibiotics, if that happens twice, the packer will no longer pick up any cattle from that rancher, which I thought was really, I didn't actually know that. um, But I just thought that was really a testament to how like aggressive the steps are to make sure that no antibiotics ends up in our food supply system. This episode is brought to you by cool.fm. How many times do you have to switch stations to find the music you like? Us too. Which is why we've created Cool.fm. Cool. The new internet radio station bringing you the perfect playlist. The perfect blend of adult hits, modern country, and your favorite classics. We've been doing all this late night talking. Cool.fm is the only station you'll need to get your music fix. And the best part, Cool.fm is accessible on all mobile platforms and smart devices. So you can multitask all day and listen to the music you like best. Cool.fm, the radio station for music lovers. Available online at Cool.fm, that's K-E-W-L.fm, and on all mobile and smart devices. Internet radio at its best. Cool.fm. Welcome to Discover More. My name is Benoit Kim, a former policymaker turned psychotherapist, and I'll be providing you with meta mental health insights. From today's episode, you will learn about the reality behind animal agriculture in America and how mental health and agriculture are deeply connected. I bet you didn't see that coming. This week's guests are Natalie Kovark and Tara Vendra Dustin. Natalie Kovark and Tara Dustin are podcasters of the Discover Act Show, modern spokesperson for the Western lifestyle, ranchers, agriculture advocates, and social entrepreneurs. Natalie is a pharmacist turned agriculture educator and speaker, and Tara is an environmental scientist who dedicates her life's work to advocating for agriculture and regenerative farming. Together, they host the popular agriculture podcast, Discover AG. Natalie and Tara gathered large social media following through their popular debunking series, evidence-based advocacy, and rigorous research. Expect to learn about why agriculture is not the environment's biggest enemy, the reality of added hormones in dairy products that are sold in the United States grocery stores, how agriculture is truly the future why farmers have such a high suicide rate, and much more. Please join us in this week's train of Discover More by talking everything agriculture and mental health. Let's get this started. Natalie and Tara, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. So I want to start with some of the background that you two represent that I think a lot of the city folks are distanced from or not as familiar with. So what does the Western or rural lifestyle mean to you both? Well, I'll kick it off. So I um, am actually a fifth generation dairy farmer and I am married. My husband, who is also a fifth generation dairy farmer, and we live on his family farm here in eastern New Mexico. I have my degree in environmental science and I've spent the last 10 years working as an environmental consultant in the 
the dairy and ag space uh, around environmental and regulatory area of agriculture. And then now, um, as you mentioned, I'm sharing on social as well as through our uh, podcast, Discover Ag, and I'll turn it over to Natalie now. So like Tara, I also have history in agriculture. It's not uncommon for people who are in ranching and farming to grow up in it. So I was actually raised in Southwest Montana on a cattle ranch there. Um, I got my degree in pharmacy. And so I don't like to say I left agriculture because I still lived you know, very close to my family ranch and I spent a lot of time on it. But I was living in a bigger city in Montana, which is relative for some listeners. I'm sure it's tiny compared to where some people may be living. But I was living in a bigger city, working at a hospital, um, you know, practicing as a full-time pharmacist. I met my husband um, and he ranches in Nebraska and that is kind of how I ended up down here when we got married. So we uh, run a cattle ranch down here. Um, it's him and I and our um, three sons. And like Tara mentioned, together we do a lot of social sharing about agriculture, um, whether that's on our individual platforms um, on Instagram or, you know, Facebook, different things like that, or together on our podcast, Discover Ag. Yeah, uh, Natalie and Tara, appreciate you to providing context. And I wanted to start with the contextualization question, because what I learned more and more on social media is that a lot of people take their advice or statements without the given context at hand. And I also didn't know both of your scientific, empirically trained backgrounds with environmental science and pharmacists. But why do you think it's important that you two have such a intellectual rigorous background tackling such a monstrosity of a topic like agriculture, because as you two know better than anyone, the water is infinitely deep. Yeah, that's such a good question and comment. Um, one of the things we talk about a lot on our podcast is how nuanced a lot of the conversations around agriculture are. I think when we see a headline as consumers, um, as you know, anyone that eats food, obviously, we see a massive headline and we just take it at like truth or, you know, and, and a lot of times those are end up being really like clickbaity titles that are there to, in, you know, inspire fear, inspire wanting us to click that headline. And when you actually have to go back and talk about the conversation, there's so much more detail, so much more nuance that goes into these conversations. Ag is not black and white. There is a ton of gray area and there is so many different faucets of agriculture. You know, we think about ag as just ag, but you know, coming from a cattle rancher um, for Natalie and a dairy farmer, Tara, I mean, we find so many differences just between our two industries and we're both working within cattle. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember too, that food is kind of an emotional thing for a lot of people. You know, it's tied to memories, it's tied to family, it's tied to history or heritage and whatever it is. And so sometimes I think Tara and I both, when we advocate and share, we love to bring the emotional um, aspect of advocating and, you know, relaying about food in that way. But I think it's important to remember to balance that emotion with the facts so that it isn't a purely emotional conversation. Otherwise, you know, some people can get very, well, for lack of a better word, emotional, you know, over their food choices and what they think is, you know, best for their body and best for the planet. And so I think just balancing the emotion that maybe surrounds food and food choice with that fact kind of maybe helps, you know, those conversations, you know, hopefully play out better. And to even go a level deeper, it's almost like the microcosm for value proposition. I feel like speaking of emotionality, because as a psychotherapist, Natalie, I love the connection you just made because everything is emotional. Addiction, substance abuse, it's emotional. It's a manifestation and byproduct of a deeper root issue. And a lot of people, of course, resort to food as a coping mechanism in a lot of senses with sugar, with corn, corn syrup, and a lot of these 
air quote healthy substitutes deemed by FDA are in many aspects worse than a lot of these substances we often talk about. So why is it important that we address the emotional issues related to food consumption? Because as you two talked about earlier, everybody eats food and it's not like a skincare, a cosmetic product. Everybody literally eats food and food is not just emotional connection, but I think it's the baseline that connects everyone, no matter from what walks of life or education level or any other labels you want to attach to that. Yeah, it's absolutely at the root of everything that we connect. I mean, it's and and I think as farmers, we and ranchers, we address that. It is a very personal thing to think about the food that we grow and raise is ultimately like in your home, served on your table, like you're feeding it to your families. It is a very like deeply personal thing in our lives. You're right. It is a deeply personal thing. And we all know that memory associations and memory formation are often related to the stimuli, in this case, food. So speaking of the nuances, Natalie and Tara, let's go down to the lanes of nuances where nobody likes because of the TikTok headliner culture. What, you're telling me you have to read more besides the 130 characters that someone created through scripts and trends basis? That's crazy to me. But uh, jokes aside, like what is the reality between greenhouse, gas emissions, or methane productions by animal agriculture industry, specifically U2's forte cattle's uh, or cows, because people love attaching their volume, because it's not really about facts anymore, it's about their volume and what they feel like believing. Yeah, so this is going to be, uh, we'll just settle right in here, because this is, um, as we've talked about, there's a lot of different things to bring to this conversation. First, I think it's really important, and this gets missed a lot, talking about those headlines, you know, those TikToks of, or, you know, tweets of 40 characters or 140, whatever it is, you know, that the shorter our attention spans are getting and the shorter, you know, social media is getting, these details are getting lost. Um, and one of those is US versus global. And so when we, you know, go forward in this conversation, Tara and I will probably talk mostly in U.S. Um, numbers. And there are a lot of organizations or articles out there that will switch between. They'll use maybe a global statistic to that supports their cause a little bit better or, you know, shines a worse light on agriculture. And you can't, you just can't like interchange those in the same conversation. Um, it's like apples to oranges, right? So we'll focus on probably talking mostly like U.S. emissions and U.S. cattle and just kind of staying in our own territory unless, you know, you bring up a specific question because there is a lot to think about globally, right? Like agriculture doesn't stop at our nation's borders. You know, it, it carries across the entire globe. So not that we don't want to talk about global, we'll just kind of, I guess, address like US, you know, emissions instead of globally, I guess, just to get right into the, the numbers. So according to the EPA, greenhouse gas emissions from cattle are less than agriculture as a whole is 11%. And livestock within that is less than 4%. I think it's like 3.7, maybe. Tara, do you know for sure? Yep, it's about 3.7. It's just under four um, of em total emissions in the United States. So, you know, very small uh, percentage. We have uh, transportation, industry, and electricity that make up, I think, over 80% of that. When you look at the numbers, it is vastly different than what, you know, kind of those headlines are saying that cattle are ruining the environment, you know, whatever those titles may be. Uh, the numbers are pretty low when it comes to cattle's emissions. Tara, do you have anything to add to the some pervasive statistics related to that end? Yeah, and I think one of the things that also is a part of this conversation is while we may only be like just less than 4%, it doesn't mean that we're just like sitting back and just saying, oh, that's good enough, like we're low enough. There is a ton going into reducing cattle's and overall all of agriculture's carbon footprint. 
Another really fun statistic that surprised people is um, agriculture currently is actually a carbon sink. So Natalie mentioned that agriculture and forestry make up about 11% of total emissions, um, but they're actually a 12% carbon sink. So they actually already currently are in negative emissions, but we are trying to do even better to help offset some of the other emissions that are going on in our system. Um, as Natalie said, like just like agriculture goes beyond our borders, we know that greenhouse gas emissions are not like in their own little bubbles either, right? It's an entire global scale. It's entire what our entire nation is producing. Um, and so by agriculture being able to offset some of the other industries, uh, I think is a really crucial part of ag being like a key player in kind of this climate solution conversation. So Tara brings up a really valid point too that I think a lot of people miss in this conversation um, or at least don't carry the conversation you know, to include is that yes, again, like we're not denying that agriculture has a, global, a footprint. Like we, we fully recognize that like what we are doing, you know, does carry methane or carbon. Like we, we're, we, have a, we have a footprint. But I don't think people talk about like what agriculture is doing, right? So like we're putting food on the plates for people three times a day. We have you know, grocery stores, fulls of food. It's like, we have to understand. I think I just get frustrated that I'm like, we're 11%, you know, and cattle are, you know, again, that's total counting crops. So cattle are less than that. It's like, that's our footprint, but look at what, you know, we're providing, right? Like food, it's a necessity. We need it. Um, and we don't just provide that for our nation. Obviously we have importation and exportation too. And so I get frustrated that it's like, what are we supposed to do? You know, feed people with zero? Like we, we can't, like we, we have to be allowed to have some port, some sort of, you know, output for us. And I just think that gets missed. And I also think like carrying on that note of like, I guess, positive parts of it. We also miss a lot of the conversation of like the good things um, ruminants can do. So like cattle grazing out at pasture actually are extremely beneficial to soil health. Tara mentioned earlier, carbon sink. Ag and forestry are the only things that can act at as a carbon sink and it's because of the soil. So the, you know, the better we do at our jobs as farmers and ranchers are taking care of that soil, which grazing animals are a part of that. They're an integral part of that actually, the more we can actually pull the carbon out of the air. So there's a lot of benefits to actually having cattle on the ground too. Again, there's a trade-off. We're gonna have those outputs of carbon and methane, but you know, we get to recycle them. They're part of like a biogenic um, carbon cycle. And so I just think like, there's just puzzle pieces people like to put out there instead of putting them all together. I think I could just sit back throughout this entire conversation and just let you two take the lead. Uh, this would be a fabulous conversation for me just to sit in. But I do want to ask some clarifying questions. So you talked about the 11% total contribution to the total carbon emission. And among that, about 3.74% is the actual number. Are you including both factory farming and dairy farms like you two? Or what's the differences or nuances there? Yeah, so four, just under 4% is the total for all animal agriculture. So, you know, the animal production side of agriculture. Um, so we said 11% is all of ag. So that includes crop production, you know, producing um, all of our vegetables, all of our fruit, um, tree nuts, you know, all of that is that 11%. Within that 11%, 4% is all of animal ag. And that includes all different types of animal ag production. I think one thing that um, might like surprise people is I feel like if a lot of people heard about like or saw our farm, um, they 
would probably classify it as a quote unquote, a factory farm. And I live about 100 steps to my dairy barn and my backyard is literally our cow's pens. I think the word factory farm gets thrown out there a lot without people fully understanding, um, what the farms actually look like. Uh, we have a lot of tours on our farm and it always surprises people. They go in with a ton of misconceptions and leave really with a ton, like with their eyes being opened as to the fact that larger farms does not always mean like bad, like big is not bad. Um, small is not better. There's tons of different sized farms and it's about, you know, the management practices that go into it and the farmers behind it. And, and I'll let Natalie speak on the beef side. Cause I think she has some really incredible numbers that share kind of what the beef side of this looks like. Yeah. So like Tara mentioned when it comes to, and I'm actually going to pause for a second. Cause I do think this is another, I don't want to say like problem. I just think it's another like nuance that adds a layer of complexity when we're just trying to have these normal conversations. Um, so I do think that all the different animal proteins get lumped together. So people will interchangeably talk about the chicken industry with the pork industry, with, you know, the beef industry, with the dairy industry, not understanding that all of them are going to be you know, vastly different. The pork and the chicken industry are what is called vertically integrated. And for anyone who doesn't know what that means, it means that there is one owner from the beginning of the product until the very end. So that would be like a Tyson. A Tyson could own the chicks all the way from the very beginning, all the way to the very end. It is fully owned by Tyson. One thing I think a lot of people don't know about the beef industry when it comes to, you know, red meat, steaks, hamburger, all of that, it is not vertically integrated. So it truly is a collection of families together to provide, um, you know, your steak or your hamburger, whatever's in the grocery store or on your plate in the restaurant or at home. Over 90% of those are family operated. Uh, the numbers are about 700,000 in the U.S. So there's 700,000 families that are raising beef. Uh, the average herd size like um, is 43. So like Tara said, I think the idea that factory Farming um, gets thrown out a little bit more than it should because there's 700,000 families in the U.S. that have an average of 43 cows and together collectively they're putting, again, you know, that red meat on the table. And so I just um, like Tara said, I think a root of the issue is, is that we do we did get removed from farming and ranching, right? Like we and it would be the same, you know, Tara and I talk about this with agriculture, but it's the same if I was to go and try and talk about electricity. Like, I, I don't know what it takes to, to walk into my house and turn on the light switch. You know, I have a lot of misconceptions about it. I'm just removed from it. It's a privilege we have in the, you know, living where we do. And so I don't expect everyone to understand everything about agriculture because you don't, right? You're living in urban cities, you're living in sprawls, you're living wherever it is that, you know, you don't have to be out at the field anymore or have a milk cow to, you know, have milk or, you know, garden if you don't want to. And so it's not our fault that we're removed. That's just the way, you know, we've progressed as a society. But I do think, like Tara said, if we could get back to the idea of people actually just setting foot on a farmer ranch, I think a lot of those things that we're feel for of or things we have questions around would really come to ease and just make a lot more sense if you could get your boots on the soil on an actual ranch or farm. I actually am planning on visiting some places after this, not today, but down the road based on what I take away. And I think it's similar to like the nuances podcasting. People are like, oh, you just get on a mic and have a conversation. How hard could it be? Right. You start one and get back to us after and we'll <laughs> talk then. But aside from advocating for the art form of podcasting, because it is absolutely an art. I want to go back to Tara and can you bring up some of the most commonly seen or heard misconceptions that a lot of tourists bring to your place 
And I would love for you to redefine and recontextualize what factory farming means to you both. Because I was under the same impression that factory farming just means a certain size. You meet a certain threshold and each livestock gets treated a little bit worse based on this need to massively produce for the sake of economic sake. Yeah, so I'll kick it off on the dairy side. So the dairy I'm on milks about 2,000 cows, which is a lot of cows when people think about that number. And really, I think when people come on, they're always surprised at the level of detail that goes into everything that we do, um, all the way from which cows are in which pens. There's a, a massive amount of science and information that goes into that. Cow comfort, honestly, whether this is a dairy or I'd say a ranch, is truly a priority as our cows being healthy. Um, um, optimal genetics for our cows, making sure that, you know, we're using genetics that are really high quality. Uh, for a dairy cattle, you know, we are not out on pasture. We are in confinement. It's called a CAFO. Um, and so our cows are in pens. And uh, we have a nutritionist, actually, that plans all of our cows' diets, depending on which stage of life they're in. So if depending on where they're at on the dairy, how old they are, what's going on in their lives, they're going to have a different what we call ration of what they're eating. And it is very, very detailed down to the like level of, you know, the micronutrients, what kind of minerals and vitamins they're getting. And then we also have a vet that comes on site once a week that does herd health checks. So checking, you know, the overall health of our entire herd. And then finally, honestly, for cows to be, um, for dairy specifically, the healthier the cow, the better the milk quality is going to be. And if you want to talk about it from a business standpoint, the business standpoint, we get paid on milk quality. So the healthier, more comfortable our cows are, actually, the better the milk quality will be and the more we get paid. I'll tell you for a lot of dairy farmers, yes, it's a business. We want it to be financially viable, but we also truly care about the well-being and welfare of our cattle. But we're actually in the middle of calving season uh, right now on our operation. So we're literally all, you know, we have a portion of our herd that is having calves right now. It's just like it sounds. And I think it would surprise a lot of people that during calving, we actually almost live with them. We have someone with our cattle 24 hours watching them so that we can assist with birth, do anything we need to with the newborn calf. And so again, like you said, I, I think there's this maybe a blanket idea of what, you know, we do as farmers and ranchers. And we just say, yeah, we care for animals. And like, we, we call that good, right? Like we want everyone to like us and trust us because you know, we care about our animals, but we really, truly do. I don't know a lot of people that, you know, my husband's awake from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. And then we have someone come in at 4 to 8. You know, we have different people checking our cattle continually for 24 hours. And we will for the next 45 days until we're through this calving season. And so that's just one little tiny example of, you know, the level of attention and care that it goes into when we talk about animal husbandry on these operations. I'm laughing that you said that, Natalie, that you live with your cattle, because I mentioned that <laughs> the pen behind my house is filled with cows. It's actually our close-up cows. So it's our cows that are about to give birth so that we can keep a really close eye on them. And the reason that the dairy farmer built our house where he built it was so that when he walked out the door, he could literally have visual eyes right then and there of what the cows were doing and how they were calving. That's pretty crazy. I did not understand or appreciate the minutiae detail that goes into these massive operation because 2000 cows are a lot of cows i'm just visualizing my cows. brain it's a lot of cows that reminds me of a lot of the resistance i'm very meta as a thinker so i like making different connections and i'm gonna try my best to weave this into mental health somehow <laughs> a lot of clients and patients when they come see myself or a different psychotherapist a lot of their objection especially if they're men they said oh you're just getting paid to do what you do and my response is, yes, I am getting paid and I love what I do. Why can't we have both? 
like I feel like the United States live in this dichotomy of or. It's ands. Like to Tara's point, you can be very animal health conscientious and care about your ac- economics of your business. And it sounds like based on the higher quality of the milk, higher the economics outcome, it's a win-win scenario. And I feel like it comes down to not intellectual laziness per se, but a lot of lack of exposure, education. But I just want to put this on a messaging board that you can do both. We do what we do because we love what we do. At the same time, we want to be validated and get paid for the value that we provide. That's what salaries or payment is, essentially. Um, so I just wanted to make that connection really quickly. I actually thank you for doing that. I love that you did that. And I know I'd echo Tara to say the same thing, because like Tara said, we're trying to run this as a profitable business, but there's still emotion in it for us as humans caring for, you know, land and animals. And I just it can't be one without the other. And it shouldn't be one without the other. And I don't know why anyone would want it to be one without the other. Right. Like there should be no reason that the people that are producing our food should live in poverty, you know, just to make a point that like we're not doing this for money. You know, we're doing it because we care. It's like, no, we should be able to run it like a business be profitable, hopefully, and put out, you know, something that, you know, feel really good about what we're doing because we care about it. And so I absolutely think that there needs to be more destigmatization around that. And you kind of chuckled. Um, I was looking on my phone trying to bring up some stats and I didn't do it quick enough, but you kind of chuckled about tying mental health back in. And I don't know if you know this, but mental health is actually a huge issue in agriculture. Farmers and ranchers carry one of the highest suicide rates. Um, it's actually a really big problem and there's trying to get more dialogue, you know, attention, conversation around it. And so I think mental health with agriculture actually, you know, should be talked about more and it actually really is um, connected. It's just not, I guess, highlighted or a light isn't shown on it enough that that connection between the two. Can you go deeper and elaborate in terms of some of the contributing factors or some of the understanding you to share in terms of the correlation between suicide risk and farmers? Because I have, that has never crossed my consciousness ever until just now. And it's pretty mind blowing. Yeah, I'll jump in and give Natalie a second to pull up some stats. But one of the things, there's a few things that go into play as with anything. Um, It can be a very isolating job. You can spend a lot of time on your own, you know, out in the country, not getting the resources you need. It's not as simple. Like even if you wanted to get help, sometimes in rural America, that's not as simple as it seems. We've come a long way, I would say, with having, you know, opportunity to be able to connect, obviously, via media now, um, the internet. Um, Another thing is people don't always understand the amount of financial burden is on farmers. I mean, some of these operations we're talking about now are millions and millions of dollars. And these farmers are millions and millions of dollars in debt with very small margins. There's just not a lot of profit here. And so it can be obviously very financial or weighing um, the finance side can be very weighing on um, the farmers. Uh, another thing, a piece of it is the legacy. We both talked about being generational farmers. There can be a ton of pressure for you to continue a family farm. If you want to leave, there can be a lot of pressure that, you know, you kind of like you were the let, generation that let the farm down. Um, if you don't end up being financially viable or you have to go out of business for a reason, that can be extremely emotionally taxing. I know actually know my dad right now is currently making the transition out of dairy farming and in just to farming. And I like 
it took a toll on me. I literally, I get emotional just thinking about it now that it just, I don't want to feel like we like let my grandfather down who came over from the Netherlands. And, and there's just this whole emotional psychology side of it, of this generational aspect and the heritage of it. For a lot of farmers and ranchers, it's not just what they do. It's not just a job. It is literally a way of life. It's, you know, it's where you live. You live on your farm. It would be like you quitting your job and no longer having a place to live because you lived at your job. Like it's completely immersing yourself in this culture and to take that away or, or to feel that like financial burden of it, um, obviously is very draining. So the CDC uh, ranks suicide rates in agriculture worse than any other sector. For ag workers, it's 36 per 100,000, which only trails mining and construction. And there's a lot of other stats in there as well. But yeah, it's really severe. And obviously to all the points that Tara just talked about, and one I, she missed that I think is also huge is that we, we spend our job and our livelihood, like Tara said, doing something that we don't have a lot of control over. So mother nature can severely affect our bottom line. Think about the flooding in California right now. I think there is, you know, multi-million damage to strawberry farmers. There's multi-million damage to lettuce farmers. And so, you know, and those are just two protests off the top of my mind. We had um, major flooding in Nebraska about four or five years ago. And it was one of the most stressful things because you just don't have control over it. And that's just one example, right? You could have heat, we have drought, you have snowstorms. Like if we had a massive snowstorm right now in the middle of calving that, you know, God forbid, a lot of calves didn't make it, those calves, that's how we make our money is selling those calves. And if you, you can't just make more calves appear, it also takes a long time, right? So even if we could breed back, it's like that takes, you know, nine months and then to, it's like a two year thing before we could even see another profit. And so you have weather that you can't control. You also have markets that you can't control. So the price we get paid for, you know, cattle at sale or auction or on the market is out of our control. Um, and like Tara said, sometimes those are really tight margins. And so you don't know when to sell and when not to sell. And so there's all of these decisions um, that you don't really have control over. And so I think that's also a thing that brings into the mental health side of it is because you're just battling something that you feel like you're really up against a lot of odds. This is amazing. Wow. So I want to talk about like the bottom line, bottom line and top line avenue because our revenue, because once again, social media headliner culture, when people talk about we have a seven figure business, eight figure business. Okay. If you're making a million dollars, but you take home $20,000, that's not, that's so much work for the stress to even maintain seven figure business. And I sort of sense that in terms of the hardship and difficulty and the financial reality that a lot of these farmers who are truly the backbones, who allow us to have food on our table, even with the financial backing or socioeconomic classes, things like that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's pretty shocking to me that a lot of people never even talk about the suicide rate because I'm a veteran. So suicide prevention is actually some of my highest emphasis area. And I am going to psychedelic therapy because of its shown evidence-based research in terms of its ability to really uh, shift the suicide landscape, because it has been pretty unchanging for the past few decades. But I have a personal question that I'd love to ask you two both, and I think it touches on everything we just talked about. Tara and Natalie, you two just talked about the difficulty of being a farmer. It's inheritance difficulty is the nature aspect, that you don't have control over the outcome. And I love having like arborists or some people who grow their own food on the podcast because I think there's something about this idea that you have to surrender to the force of nature. You can't exert your will over, like you said, Natalie, if the calves die because of the blizzard storm, 
you can't just snap your finger and say, hey, make a few more. It's literally not possible. So how do you two view surrender and how have you to safeguarded your own mental health? Being part of this industry, in addition to being advocates, in addition to being social entre entrepreneurs, in addition to all the other hats like a parent, a wives and other hats, identities you guys embrace day to day. Yeah, first off, thank you uh, for your service. You said you're a veteran, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I think that's what, you know, what would make us good at our jobs, right? So we talked about all these things we're up against, um, but that doesn't mean there aren't things we can do to hopefully prevent those outcomes, even though, like you said, um, at the end of it, like we're completely at, you know, mother nature's mercy. And so I, I think it's a, a, about being a good farmer or rancher or, you know, doing the little things that would make a difference between if the snowstorm is out there, we bring the cows into the barn then so that hopefully the calves are born inside and not outside. There's a big difference between a calf born in snow and mud or a calf born on fresh straw that we lay in the barn. And so there are little things we can do to help again with combat those things that we feel like we don't have control over. My husband and, and I, um, I no longer practice as a pharmacist. I fill in at our, our local pharmacy, but you know, my day to day is on the operation. And so I think support is really big about, um, you know, maintaining that, you know, positive mental health, I guess, attitude. I love that you ended on that support conversation. I'll kind of add to that. Um, you know, I mentioned that we're like a larger farm. Well, one of the reasons too, is we have uh, my husband is one of six boys and five out of six of the brothers are all on the dairy along with my father-in-law. And so there's a lot of family all working together and working with family can have its pros and cons, but one of the pros is having a ton of support. Um, so one of the things that we're able to do is rotate out like who goes on vacation or who's out of town for a weekend. I know that there's farmers, um, especially a lot of dairy farmers, because dairy farming is literally you milk your cow every single day, twice a day, no matter what time of year it is or what day it is. So it's a 24 hour, seven day a week job that, you know, you don't, there's dairy farmers that have never had a vacation. I have met dairy farmers that have never left their county because of the requirements of having to be so tied to the dairy. And so for my husband and I to be able to lean on support of his siblings and his father and being able to be able to take time for our family to go on vacation um, and knowing someone's at home to be able to oversee the operation is amazing. And without that sport, uh, support, it would be such a heavier burden to carry for us. Um, I know when my dad started out, he was on his own and my grandfather would travel from about five hours away to come oversee if we were going out of town. And I just remember like it just had to be such a conversation about us going out of town. And I feel so lucky now to be in that family business that has that support aspect of it. Like I said, aside from the surrender, I, I feel like we have to first safeguard against our own mental health to really show for the cows because I do know that they're one of the most socially competent, smart, and attuned and sensitive animals. Right? Of course, we all have seen footage of cows crying and things like that. So uh, I do know the, that's the extent of my knowledge. Please don't ask me any questions. But, <laughs> <laughs> but let's go into the dairy because I feel like it's like a big pillar in both of your lives and some of your advocacy work. Can either you or both of you elaborate further about the statements that you two talk often on your podcast and your social media, how all milks on the shelf in the grocery stores are healthy, tested, and good for you without any antibiotics? Because I don't know when that misconception started, but there's this idea, and I harbored this um, a few years ago, that, oh, you have to look out for this antibiotics and all these different added hormones. And I know Tara just did a debunking video recently but we'd love for you to elaborate a little bit further and just gift folks with some of the more tangible insights. 
Yeah. So you were, we've been talking about mental health. And one thing that's uh, ad, like that I'm a big advocate and Natalie is too, is we want people to be able to go into the grocery store and feel safe about the food they're choosing, especially in the meat, um, the beef and dairy aisles, because um, that can weigh really heavy on people's mental health as well of feeling not sure about what food to choose when they're grocery shopping for their family. And so one of the things I love to talk about is that all milk on the shelf is safe and held to the same standards, whether that's conventional or organic or grass fed. Those are actually differences between conventional organic is actually farming practices It is not a safety standard. It's how we farm on the dairy. But you can really truly feel good about all the milk on the shelf is being safe and antibiotic free. Uh, so we're a conventional dairy. So we do give our cows antibiotics when they're sick and it is prescribed by a vet. If a cow is getting antibiotics, she actually goes in what's called our hospital pen, quote unquote, and she is removed from the milking herd. So her milk is milked separately and then it is discarded. It never makes it into the food supply chain. And then even after she has stopped taking antibiotics, there's what we call a withdrawal period. So there's a period where she is not receiving antibiotics, but her milk still does not make it into the food supply system until that antibiotics has completely cleared her system. Then she's able to come back into the milking herd. Every single tanker of milk that leaves our farm is tested at the parts per billion for antibiotics, along with a number of other things. If anything were to get flagged, we would have to discard the milk and pay for it ourselves um, as the farmer. Uh, the milk is also tested again at the plant and is randomized sampling within the grocery store as well. So there's absolutely no milk on the shelf with antibiotics. Uh, the added hormone conversation also gets a little crazy. Um, you'll see a lot of stickers on milks that say like RBST free or from cows not treated with RBST. As of now in 2023, there is not a single milk on the shelf from cows treated with RBST. Um, it was a approved, you know, an FDA approved uh, hormone that was given to cows more in the 80s and 90s. Very quickly, dairy farmers realized that consumers did not like it. It was just a PR thing that it was not well received. And most dairy farmers transitioned it out. Now it is officially not on the shelf at all. So again, something that people don't even need to be concerned about. But I know from what I see online, I still get so many questions about those two things, even though I'm like, I wish you didn't have to, like, you don't have to worry about this. I wish it wasn't weighing on your mind. And it kind of goes similar to the beef side. And I'll let Natalie kind of jump in on the beef side of things. We actually just talked about this uh, two episodes ago. Um, we were talking about interviewing someone about the packer processor level um, and antibiotics there and kind of how they test. And they walked us through the whole process. And like Tara said, the same thing will happen on the, the beef industry. So the, the packer processor is obviously the end portion of it. Um, it's where the animal's going to, you know, get harvested. And so they are doing randomized tests there as well. If anything is shown to have antibiotic, it is pulled um, and everything is lauded there. They have a numeric system. So if one, you know, one part of the animal showed, they are able to trace it back to the entire animal. They're able to trace it back to the entire ranch. That ranch actually, you know, the rancher gets flagged, they get put on a list. And so there's this whole process that goes through to make sure that no antibiotic ever enters our food system. Um, in my opinion, and I, I think Tara would echo the same statement, but it's absolutely just a marketing ploy that has unfortunately turned to confuse consumers. Uh, it's not something you need to be worried about. One thing Natalie and I learned in that Packer conversation too, was if a farmer or a rancher is like a repeat offender. So if they have a cattle that 
flags for antibiotics, if that happens twice, the packer will no longer pick up any cattle from that rancher, which I thought was really, I didn't actually know that. Um, but I just thought that was really a testament to how like aggressive the steps are to make sure that no antibiotics ends up in our food supply system. I understand why we wouldn't want antibiotics in our food system, but I wish there wasn't fear around the idea of a rancher saying, or a dairy farmer, you know, whatever, you know, someone who raises pigs saying, our operation uses antibiotics because it's actually goes into that animal husbandry portion, right? Like if you had a kid that was sick or you were sick or a loved one was sick, we don't deny them antibiotics to treat something we know we can. We absolutely treat our animals with antibiotics. We want, if we can treat them, help them get through, it could be possibly life or death. Um, and if it's not, it could be possible, you know, time of suffering or not. And so we absolutely use them as a means to treat, but just because we do that doesn't mean they're going to end up in the food system. My identity was a former policymaker. I worked in the city level in Philadelphia for about six years before my recent career pivot into the clinical field two years ago. So I'm very cynical. So this is a cynical question and I'd love for you to fact check me and just provide any insight. It sounds like there is this like a machinery of the supervision process, very rigorous, multiple step. At the same time, I understand that anytime there is a giant machine working, there is space for error and corruption. And I asked that because my first thought when I heard about this rigorous process you two just beautifully unpacked uh, for me is, is there any room to wiggle your way out of the blacklist, air quote, that you two just alluded to? Or is there any way for certain powerful or maybe family of farmers or ranchers with certain economic or certain insider influence to bypass certain procedures? I, I know this is like an insider question, but that's where my brain went and hope anything comes up for both of you. I cannot think of an instance where that would happen um, or where it would even make sense. I think within ag, like kind of your reputation is everything. Um, and that starts at the farm. Like in dairy, we are what's called a co-op. So we co-op our milk. We're in like a group with other dairy farms. So if you have a bad actor within your co-op, it is in the co-op's best interest to remove them from the co-op because it's everyone's reputation on the line. So there's also that accountability within agriculture from farmer to farmer, rancher to rancher. Those bad apples do nothing to serve the betterment of the industry. Um, you know, this goes for, I know, like speaking from dairy, there has been times in the past where we've had, you know, uh, undercover activist videos come out. And depending on the scenario and each is a case by case instant, those bad actors do not serve the greater greater good of the dairy industry. It does, you know, it's a PR nightmare for all of us. It ends up being a black eye for everyone, even the people that are doing it right. So in my mind, it doesn't make sense. I know my husband actually even like serves on a board where they discuss within our co-op of like how things are going, what the overall standards and procedures are for our co-op. And I think those are all just like really important pieces of this. That makes sense. And I, I feel a little bit more assured after because I've done my research. So I, I trust you two as like the proxy of information or vetting. So I want to talk about the, uh, the merch that you have, Natalie, that it talks about agriculture is not the problem. And I love the design. Um, can you elaborate more? And of course, we talked all about that, but just some sort of a messaging board you two want to share and feel free to take whatever direction that fits. But why isn't agriculture the problem? Yeah, so I started that apparel line accidentally. 
I, um, as you mentioned, do, you know, Boltar and I do advocating online and with the online landscape, obviously you have a lot of people that follow you that support your message. Um, but you also can land in front of people who don't support your message, um, or your belief system. And that is very much so true for agriculture. And the, you know, obviously the larger my page got, the more, you know, my content would get in front of people who didn't, um, you know, believe in agriculture, want animal agriculture, you know, maybe were confused about it, just had a lot of misinformation around it. And so I was continually getting a lot of comments that were either very negative towards, you know, myself or what we do, or just ones that were, you know, questions, misinformation kind of. And I remember sitting at the dining room table and I, I don't remember what the comment itself exactly said, but I remember the moment and I was talking to my husband and I just kept saying, you know, I'm just so frustrated by this comment. I think it was on like a reel or something. And I was like, it, you know, they just understood that, you know, ag's not the problem. It's like I said earlier, you know, we're contributing to greenhouse gas emissions, but you know, like we have, there's bigger fish to fry. There's other things we could be doing. And, you know, again, talking about all the benefits, I was, I just kept saying, you know, ag is not the problem. I don't understand why everyone thinks ag is the problem. And at the same time, I am a very creative person. So I, I had been looking for a new kind of fun, unique way to um, do an advocacy post. And there's that account, the dude with a sign from New York who holds up a sign. And I had done that. And I was kind of wanted to do one I had saw where there was like something written on a shirt. And so that was the next one I was going to do. And I didn't quite know what I wanted to put on a shirt, but I just knew I wanted to do those two ideas. And the moment clicked at the, the dining room table with my husband, I thought, oh, that's, that's what I'll put on, you know, either the sign or the shirt. I'll put ag is not the problem. And so when I went out, whatever it was, you know, day it was to create content, I ended up doing the t-shirt and I wrote ag is not the problem, just, you know, black permanent marker on a t-shirt. And my audience kind of overwhelmingly um, loved it. They were like, is this a real shirt? Can we buy this? We love this. And so that is how I accidentally started that apparel line, but it really came down to, you know, I said that it was not just a shirt, that it was like a mission that I was trying to put out there um, to really spread that notion and the idea, or even just start the conversation, you know, ag, cows, whatever we want to, you know, that word we want to put there isn't necessarily the problem. And, you know, I carried it on even further to say it can be part of the solution, which is one of the things that Tara and I love to talk about. You know, we mentioned ways earlier that, you know, how we're benefiting things we're doing. And so, I think it was really just, um, you know, to get the conversation going against those negative headlines that were saying, you know, just end animal agriculture and everything will be okay. Like, you know, I feel like truly that's what some people think. Like if we just remove cows, everything would be okay. And that's, that could not be further from the truth. And so that was my little way of maybe, you know, adding to that conversation. So let's go down this realm. But before I go down, I have a personal curiosity. Whenever I think about some of the campaigning effort that's well intended that comes with a lot more negative outcome PETA comes to my mind um <laughs> how do you two feel about PETA as a whole and uh I, I share this not just to stir up the pot so to speak but I really think it's important for us to distinguish intention versus impact yeah, so I think that, like you said, there's well intention for people having, you know, caring for animals and wanting better welfare for animals. Um, I actually think of um, our calf or our cows get what I call pedicures. They get their hooves trimmed regularly on dairy farms. It's different in the beef cattle world, but on dairy farms, they get their hooves trimmed. And the hoof trimmer was talking about how, because of some animal welfare like advice, he had made some changes to how he brought cattle into the pen. And it kind of goes back, if anyone's ever heard of Temple Graydon, Dr. Temple Graydon, um, she made changes like in the beef 
world of how cattle enter uh, packaging uh, processing plants and how it improved animal welfare. Super amazing intentions that were really well, like have improved our industries immensely. Then it goes to the other side of kind of the PETAs of the world that truly just want to end animal agriculture. And like you said, we could exchange PETA with another name, but there are organizations that they don't want betterment of animals. They want to end animal agriculture. They truly believe like what we do is wrong at their core. They go as far as thinking people should not own pets. Some of them, you know, this there's a lot of like details in there of what different groups believe. So I do think that at the root of people wanting like animals to have great welfare is amazing. I think it ends up being um, very misguided. I do think from an animal ag standpoint, animal welfare has never been better than it is right now. And I like believe that to my core. I think our genetics are amazing. I think what we're feeding our cows is really, truly great. I think we just understand our cattle better than we ever have. And so I feel really good about where we're at. There's always room for improvement. I know from the dairy side, we are constantly reevaluating like our standard operating procedures, figuring out how we could do things better. And so it kind of, I don't know, there, there's both parts of that conversation. Yeah. Like Tara said, um, I think it's great and we should have guidelines that hold ranchers and farmers to, you know, certain ways that we, you know, care for our animals or our land. And so that's all great. Like we need KPIs, things to measure, things to work towards. Like all of that is no difference in agriculture than any other industry or any other profession. You should have measurable markers, things you're doing. Again, ours are, are geared towards animals. It's a conversation around, you know, taking better care of our animals. I think for me, the problem with that is when, you know, those guidelines or recommendations um, bleed over into control, especially by someone who doesn't have the understanding of what would happen with some of the uh, requests they're making or some of the things they want us to do. And and for me, that's what I think of when I think of PETA or any other organization. It's like sometimes, again, because they, I don't feel like they truly care about whether ranchers are taking better care of their animals or not. I think they care about how do we get it so that ranchers don't exist anymore. And so I, some of the things that they ask or propose are actually almost more detrimental to animals. Like we're saying, no, like we can't do that. That would actually be worse for our herd if we did that. And I think there was an instance with um, chickens that cage free or something where they were, they were getting attacked and, you know, there's problems. And so I have a really big issue when someone wants to step in that doesn't have the knowledge, the background or the understanding and says, you do this this way, um, especially when they're trying to say it's because they want better care of the animals. Uh, when they don't really understand that it could potentially actually be more harmful, whether that's to an individual animal, to the operation of the farmer as a whole, to the land, like whatever it is. And, and I think that's my problem, you know, with those organizations. So you two are saying that some of these giant entities have alternative motives and they don't practice what they say and they don't say what they practice. Yeah, I appreciate you to answering the question. And like I said, this is not a gotcha show, but I just think about PETA often. And I remember when I went to this, farmer's market in Philadelphia a few years ago. And by that time, I was a pescatarian after reading Jonathan Fowler's book, Eating Animals. It was a very beautiful day, beautiful weather, people were doing their thing. And then PETA had a booth and they literally had baby pigs and chicken and they had bacon and eggs next to it saying that this is what you're eating. And they were giving the food samples away. And I was like, like, what is the point here? If you're really trying to advocate is influencing 50 people at the farmer's market going to help you achieve your agenda, that is just, there's such a discrepancy and such a massive gap between the intention, which was the genesis versus the actual outcome because impact does matter. And 
And yeah, I just, I felt called to ask that question because I struggle with that sometimes as an animal advocate uh, myself, like environmental and all that. But I just feel like there's a more strategic and better and healthier way to go about some of the impact they're trying to impart or change. We, I don't think Tara and I would ever deny that. I don't think we'd say that every farmer or rancher is amazing, you know, that you don't have to worry about that everyone is doing everything at status quo and there isn't a bad operation and there isn't something that is going wrong in the whole entire agriculture industry across the entire United States. Um, but like Tara mentioned earlier, any outliers that are not truly taking care of their land or their animals to the best of their ability are just that. They are outliers. That is not the majority. There is going to be no one that cares more. I mean, if Peter really truly just wanted people to care about their animals, there is no one that is going to care more about the animals on their operation than a rancher or a farmer. Um, and I don't, I am not filling any listeners with, you know, any gas or anything like that is, it is truly, again, there will be outliers that I could not speak to, but um, the greater good of agriculture truly wants to do the best for the land and the animals that they can. Yeah, going to the land point, I always like to share with people, um, you know, protecting our natural resources is crucial for, you know, farmers, ranchers. We literally work in conjunction with our land and our natural resources. And even beyond that, like I drink the same exact water as our cows. Like it comes from the same tank. There's a pipe that goes out to our cows and a pipe that goes to my house. So for me to make sure that like the water quality going to my cows and my home is of the highest quality is obviously of utmost importance to me. And so it's just, we're so like integrated into our land and our resources that, you know, whether it's on caring for the cattle or caring for the land, it's a huge piece of our lives. Yeah, Tara, you have a uh, luscious hair and skin just from the screen. So I know, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know the quality of your water has been tested, but uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that disclaimer because I think it makes a huge difference as a messaging or messengers that when you put your skin in the game, because for you, the stake is high because it's not your health, but your family's health. So I think that's a very important disclosure. So let's go. Uh, this is this is great conversation. So I want to go a little bit deeper. One thing that I just came across recently through my research with both of your podcast and platform is the rise and the increasing emphasis on regenerative agriculture or regenerative farming. So what is that? Um, can you first define it? And B, why can regenerative agriculture or farming truly be a sustainable future solution that can tackle and address many of our problems within the United States or the world as we going back to the introduction that I shared to kickstart this conversation? Yeah, so regenerative ag is definitely, um, I feel like in the news and it's coming up, it's like an up and coming topic. I feel like it's kind of like the new organic. Organic is like a set of guidelines from USDA, whereas regenerative ag is more about like working with your land, uh, your region, um, your climate, just much more. I feel like I kind of think localized and it's not like as prescriptive, like this is what you do to be regenerative. It's about, you know, working with the land and cattle involved and it being like a holistic approach to farming. That's kind of, I guess general overview I would give. But I think that it's more than that. I know as a conventional farmer, so just like a regular old farmer, um, we are implementing regenerative practices within our farm. So, you know, a big one within regenerative is no till, so not tilling the land. And we practice minimal till. 
So just something we're kind of transitioning within um, about, and we're trying to figure out how it works for our land, how much rain we get, incorporating different things. And so I, you know, Regen, um, one of the people that I really love following that's kind of talking, doing a lot talking about uh, regenerative ag is Sustainable Dish. She's an, a registered dietitian. And um, she talks a lot about the space. And it's really like the the inner workings of the entire, like, food system. So not removing animal agriculture. Animal agriculture is kind of a crucial part of regenerative ag because of the part the manure plays in nourishing our soils and, you know, being a natural fertilizer for our soils. So it's a movement. I think we're going to see a lot more of it. It'll be interesting to see kind of where it goes. Um, Kind of like the organic space. I wonder if it'll end up being like another label slapped on our food that says, you know, check its regen. I kind of hope not because I think like at the core of regen ag is a more holistic approach to agriculture. Um, On that, I'll kind of let Natalie jump in. Asked at the beginning, you asked us to define it. And um, like Tara said, unfortunately, there is no definition. There isn't for sustainability either. I think that's why there's a lot of confusion around it or why there's a lot of questions or why a lot of people are saying it's regenerative and we don't know what that means. Um, I also think a consumer would think regenerative is different than like what the farmer or rancher would think regenerative is versus maybe what, you know, a dietitian. I mean, just anyone looking at it could have a different idea of what regenerative or sustainability truly means. I don't know if we will ever quantify it or make it so that you check the boxes and that qualifies you for regenerative. So I, I don't think that's the trend of it either. I think kind of the confusing part about it too is a lot of the things that, you know, people are now saying like, oh, we're, we're doing regenerative practices are things that people or farmers or ranchers have been doing for a really long time. We just didn't think to call it regenerative or we didn't think to point it out because again, we want to do the best for our land and animals. So we just do it. So like Tara mentioned, you know, no-tilling, we've done no-till for a really long time. Do we think to like spread that message everywhere and be like, we no-till? No, that's just what makes sense for our area. We've done it forever. My, we do cover crops. Cover crops is a huge thing for, um, because you want the soil, you don't want it barren. And so we've done cover crops for a really long time. And that's part of the regenerative movement as well. And so again, I think there are families who would say, well, we've been doing that for you know decades. Like my grandpa instilled that, or we made that change 30 years ago, back in the seventies or 60, you know, whatever it is. And so I think there's kind of that, um, confusion about like, well, it's this new thing and here are the guidelines. And it's like, no, it's just like Tara said, it's just a practice that basically means you are putting more into the land than you are taking out of it. And again, at the end of the day, any rancher or farmer should be doing that uh, regardless. Like we should be giving more back than we're taking out because that's the only way, you know, we talked about generational agriculture is hugely generational. And the only way that, you know, my husband and I can run our operation from now for another 30 years or 20 years and pass it on to our children is if we do a really good job. And so at the, I feel like at the end of the day, a lot of these regenerative practices, some, there are some operations that are implementing new stuff. They're like, Oh, great. We, we can move towards this or do this differently. But a lot of regenerative farming has been going on for ages. It's just now getting labeled and called something. How do you two or some of the farmers and or ranchers you two interact with day to day, what is the collective or individual approach to maybe more innovative approaches that haven't been tested before? Because as you said, for you two to sustain this for five, six, seven generations, the foundation has to be impeccable. It's very intuitive, but people don't really think about this. I feel like some people need to think a little bit more, uh, some people maybe less so, but yeah, what is the common consensus or how do you two think about being more innovative within the container of agriculture since, as you said, what may work for someone may not work for someone else and having a standardized approach, having a standard matters because that's how you regulate on a massive level. 
At the same time, I'm curious to see if innovation is talked about or some of the insider conversations or innovation as a whole. Honestly, right now in agriculture is an amazing time to be there. So much innovation happening, so much technology. Um, just recently, there was an entire, through the USDA, um, Climate Smart loans that were given out to really advance um, technology and research in the climate smart area. And so there's there's really incredible things happening. I would say for me, some of the things I like worry about is sometimes we think there's something new and trendy and five years later, 10 years later, we realize it's not as quote unquote sustainable or green as we originally thought it was. And so I think by having, you know, generational farms, anytime you implement a new technology or any kind of new product on your farm or ranch, you really like want to consider all the ins and outs. Is this actually going to still be technology in 20, 30 years from now? Is this still going to be viable or make sense for my operation? And so that's something I think that when you're implementing something new you you really have to analyze for us right now on our dairy we are installing solar panels i think we're just a couple months out now from our barn being solar powered but it was a really long process of getting to this point a lot of research um, we talked to a lot of different companies just because we were really hesitant to install something on our farm if it wasn't going to have a lifespan of more than you know five years we wanted this to be longevity um, and really make a uh, impact long term on our farm so those are some of the things but they're there's a ton happening right now. It's, it's an exciting time. Like, What are some of the most best tested practices for you two to advocate for the things you really believe in with the mission statement? Because information overload is what the era we live in. And just parsing through the informations and making sure your message get out there is so much hard work. People just don't understand. Like being a content creator sounds cool, but it's just a lot of screen time and a lot of research, especially for how evidence-based you two are. So anything there? Yeah, so I've always said that agriculture doesn't have a product problem. We have a marketing problem, right? Like everyone needs our product, um, but clearly we got lost somewhere along the way of like explaining what we do, you know, marketing our product. And I think that's why I love social media so much is because I do feel like that is maybe a solution to our marketing problem a little bit. It's free and you can literally reach millions of people in a day, in a week in months. And so for a farmer or rancher, again, going back to that disconnect between, you know, someone who's living in the, the heart of LA or the heart of New York City to be able to see, you know, if you follow Tara or I on our social pages, every single day, I have something in my stories or a reel up that shows what it's actually like to be on a farm or a ranch, like what we're actually doing, what it means, like you can actually see what we're doing, caring for the animals, the choices we're making. And in the history of agriculture, that has never happened before. You know, people had the questions, they had the concerns, and it was like, how does a farmer get their message out there? And so I know, like you said, there are downfalls to social media and some of the way it's moving forward isn't my favorite. It's getting shorter and shorter and shorter, like you said. And that's why Tara and I actually love the podcast platform so much and, and started it is because it needs more than the nine second reel that Instagram wants us to create. But given all of that, it's still one of the most powerful things I think that agriculture has right now going for us is the ability to connect with people and actually show our truth. And again, at no cost, any time of the day, you know, we're completely in control of our message. And I just think that is such a beautiful gift. So I have a vast questions and we're definitely going to uh, wrap up this, I think, insightfully amazing and very informative conversation. And I, that's the ethos of discover more. It's not just discovering more from this conversation, but for the listeners to discover more about based on the curiosity that's been incited or triggered based on this conversation. So I have no doubt that people are going to do some more research on their own, 
even though our research is funny, like, are you producing a quality of studies or you're just browsing information? But they just use that term like, oh, research. All right, cool. Uh, here's a vast question. And uh, feel free to take turns because the chemistry between you two are insane. You guys are just coordinating everything. And this has been very effort, effort, effortless for me. So I appreciate that. So I borrowed this term from my friend and psychiatrist uh, podcaster. His name is Justin. And he used the word stats and facts. So as a social science, social scientist by practice and as some of the empirical and evidence-based advocacy that you two do on and off the show, I want to share some of more stats and facts, even though we share a lot throughout this conversation. And like I said, this is a vast question. Are there any other stats and facts that you two think are extremely important but not often talked about in this general narrative that a lot of people live under? Uh, whether it's for the city folks or whether it's for the regular consumer that it's a little bit more distant out from the Western lifestyle that you two fully embrace. Yeah, I'll start off with one. It goes back to maybe our very beginning conversations about um, family farms versus factory farms. Uh, 97% of all farms in the United States are family owned and operated. So that is, I mean, that's obviously like a huge number that's across the board of agriculture. So again, cattle, dairy, row crops, overwhelmingly, the majority is family farms and family farms, just like Natalie and I's uh, family farm and family ranch. And so I know that when I tell people that stat, I think it kind of like puts them at ease that it, it puts a face on agriculture. I think one of the issues with agriculture, um, our marketing problem, as Natalie said, is there's not always a face to it. You know, there's tons of family farms across the country, but by knowing that it's family farms, I think it like humanizes us a little bit more and it makes us more relatable and connectable to our urban counterparts. I think the stat that I will pick actually has to do with cutting meat out of our diet. So I do feel like, um, you know, it's a popular decision, right, to be vegan or vegetarian, whether that's for the moral standpoint, the environmental standpoint. But if everyone decreased our, um, or if every single American adopted our, a meatless diet, we'd only decrease our carbon footprint footprint by 2.6%. So very, again, very minimal back to my like, ag is not the problem, frustration <laughs> chant. Again, not saying that wouldn't be effective. If we did cut meat, we would cut our emissions by 2.6%. But there are other ways that we could cut that if we cared about it. And at and again, I think the second part of the question is at what cost? So cutting 2.6%, you know, that's going to add more calories, like it gets into a whole nutrition standpoint, like, are we actually being healthier, removing animal proteins? And also, again, going back to like carbon sink, um, animals important for our soil, like what would it do if we removed, you know, animals from that? So for everyone who I never like to pressure anyone into eating a certain way, I, Tara and I both 100% believe in food choice. What you get to feed yourself and your family is absolutely 100% your choice. We always just want to make sure those choices are made on facts um, instead of misinformation. So for anyone listening who I never talk moral with them because that if you're not eating meat from a moral standpoint, that's, you know, not an area I'm going to be able to to have a discussion with you about, but if you're eating it from an environmental standpoint, you know, feeling like that's the only reason that you're not eating meat, um, just remember that 2.6% because if you enjoy meat or you are starting to recognize maybe some of the detriments that have come from removing meat from your diet, there's a lot of different things you can do be to, you know, have that sustainability and feel like you're doing good for the land um, and the planet um, and the next generation beyond just cutting meat from your diet. Just make sure you don't dump out milk in grocery stores. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Let's not contribute more to food waste. That's another stat we could get into is how much of our food we waste across the country. <laughs> so yeah, no dumping out milk. Yeah, it's a reference to one of uh, Tara's uh, debunking videos on her Instagram. And of course, you know, all their information will be linked. Um, 
But I do just want to, I guess, ride that train a little bit further. Uh, this is an outdated statistic, so feel free to fact check me. But if I'm not mistaken, around 2015 or 2014, 16 era, the turkey waste because of Thanksgiving celebrations in America was about 2.6 billion pounds of turkey. Like I said, it's outdated information and you can't really trust your memory based on the recall. Uh, but it's, it's astronomically high number. We're not saying don't do it. We're just saying do it based on accurate information that's based out of facts and evidence, which is a huge advocacy that Tara and, and Natalie do. Well, I was just going to further, like you said, we waste about one third of what we produce in the United States. Um, and I do think there is more people, you know, more conversation and more attention going to because obviously what's being wasted is going into landfills or like it's also having a carbon footprint attached to it. And so if we addressed not only food waste, would it, you know, address it from an environmental standpoint, but also there are families in America who, who are don't have food. And so food waste is a really important thing that we need to start spending more time on. If food waste was a country, it would be the third largest country um, emitter on the planet. Food waste is the third highest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. So like when Natalie says, uh, her and ag is not the problem stance, like there's bigger battles to fight. I think food waste is one we should absolutely be battling. And to add on additional layer of complexity, not that we have been doing this entire show, is like food poverty, food desert, right? And a lot of these urban uh, and marginalized and impoverished communities. Like there's literally millions and millions of Americans as we speak every second, every minute, every day, every month, even if they want to put healthy options of choices, that's not sugar or corn syrup filled, they don't have a choice. They literally don't. And here we are wasting a third of our food production annually. That is wild. I'm going to forever remember the statistics and that's that, that just crazy. And here's how I want to end the show before I roll out the red carpet for you both. And I'm going to make another connection with mental health and agriculture. Here we go. So according to eating disorder, which is ED for abbreviations, by definition, categorically or systematically elimination, eliminating any sort of food is disorder eating. That's literally the clinical definition. So if you're categorically or systematically eliminating any choices of diet, whether that's veggies, I tell people I'm allergic to vegetables, or meat or beef or dairies or milk, whatever that possible, it's literally disordered eating. And you, if you make that to other co comorbidities or other symptoms or health issues, that becomes eating disorder. And the impact and the insidiousness of disordered eating on our mental health, emotional health, our performance, it is far-reaching. And not a lot of people talk about this because food is medicine. But food is also addiction. And the choice is up to us to make that decision based on the information that's accurate, like Natalie and Tara are so deeply, deeply passionate about, which is I was really grateful that you two responded to my outreach and that we're having this conversation because I learned a lot and I've never taken this relaxing approach in an interview, especially interviewing two different people. The chemistry you two have shines through the screen and uh, you guys started talking really fast towards the end. That's how you know it's passion. <laughs> And passion speaks. Like, I really believe that world creates space for passionate people. And I think that speaks to and contribute to a lot of the successes you two are having on social media and podcasting. But yeah, I really, really appreciate both of your time and the thoughtfulness and uh, things you two shared. Thank you, Benoit. It was, um, like you said, food and agriculture um, is something that Tara and I are both really passionate about. So you extending this invitation to have, you know, this layer of uh, complex conversation um, means a lot to us. And um, it was really fun. It's, you know, something we enjoy.
Yeah, thank you for hosting this like platform for us to be able to share and get into the detail, get into the weeds of all of this. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you. I've been up since like 4.30 a.m. this morning, so this feels me, this feels good, and I'm going to have more coffee after the end. But without further ado, this is where I roll out the red carpet for you, Natalie and Tara. Where can people check you out further, connect with you offline, ask some of the more pressing, not often talked about heavy hitter questions that might get lost in the weeds and all this misinformation era we live in. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, you're obviously a podcaster. So we would love if you'd come join us um, on our podcast, Discover Ag. It's available on any platform. You can podcast on. Uh, we're a Thursday episode um, and we we talk about a lot of the stuff. We talk about you know, food industry, what's going on in the food space in agriculture, um, you know, from a farmer's, a dairy farmer and a rancher perspective. So we would love it if you guys would join us there. Um, also, if you want to visually see more of what's going on on a dairy farmer's life or a rancher's life, I have my personal Instagram page, Natalie Kovoric, that I spend a lot of time there. So I would invite you to come spend time with me um, on that platform. Yeah, you can find me on my personal platform at Tara Vanderdusen. Um, so for both of us, pretty straightforward. And yeah, we try to just share the the ins and outs of our days on our prospective ranches and farms. And like you said, if anyone does, you know, find their way over following us, we hope you won't just follow, but um, ask us questions you have. Ask, you know, I just shared a baby calf the other day and I had so many good questions about it. So don't just, you know, watch, come over and actually ask those things. There are no dumb questions. We're happy to answer anything, explain what we're doing. You know, that's why we're doing it. So come, you know, be immersed and integrated as much as you want. And I will add on one more side note to that where, you know, Natalie, I'm talking about your 30 day calfing a vlogging effort that on your husband laughed about or chuckled yeah. in the video. I remember, I think it was day two or day one where you tried to retrieve calf from the mother cow and then you had to actually retreat and stop that video because the mom was being difficult under explaining so. So you can tell it's not highly scripted, highly practiced. It's like I said, mother nature is larger than we are. And I think that's a rare element of authenticity that gets lost all the time on the online community. But I know I'm very intentional with who I bring on this show. I do my due diligence. I'm not perfect, of course, but at least through my research and vetting, they really represent what they preach on their podcast. And even their podcast is very information driven, but they also incorporate some of their quirkiness and some of their real person humor. They talk about their mugs they're getting or some of the things they do day to day. So I uh, would strongly recommend people to check out Discover AG. And like I said, any podcast with Discover in the podcast is a great <laughs> podcast, period. Cheers. Cheers to discovering. Absolutely. Lots of discovering. But they also have a, a Elevate AG. They have an amazing newsletter with a robust community. And I'll link all those information in the show notes. Please go check them out and ask them questions. That's how you help spread curiosity, which is the ethos of my podcast. With that being said, to all the listeners, if you have made it till this the end, I always, always appreciate your attention span in the current era of death of nuances and the death of attention. Uh, so I appreciate you coming back week after week. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, if I can ask you to share this episode with one person and hit that subscribe button, and that's how you encourage us to grow the show, to keep doing amazing things, and for me to seek out fascinating and impactful social entrepreneurs like Natalie and Tara. And they also just started a YouTube channel, which I'll also link in the podcast episode description below. With that being said, I hope you discover more practical insights from today's conversations and i hope you can embrace your identity of being an independent thinker that you think about thinking and you think for yourself which i think is lacking and dying in today's world 
And as always, I will see you again in the next week's train of discovery. Thanks for listening.